Blimey, did you never wonder where your parents learned it all? All what? You're a woman! I... I'm a what? A woman! And a thumping good earn, I'll wager, once you've been trained up a bit. I think you've made a mistake. I mean, I can't be a woman. I mean, I'm just... Just... <laughs> well, just... Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain when you were angry or scared? You are a woman! A woman! A woman! And welcome to this very special spooky episode of Pronouns in Bio. I'm Claire Madeline, she slash her. I'm Ree Brignall, they slash them. And we have a very special guest with us today on the show. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, very special guest? Yes, hello. I am Lucy Brady. Um, I guess most people will know via the Weird Signal podcast, uh, which does still exist and we haven't actually released an episode in six months because we've had shit on but that's that's gonna happen again uh it's been happening on and off for like the last two years so yeah we talk about like haunted shit and like critical theory and films and stuff thank you very much for inviting me on no thank you for coming we are 100 percent clout chasing in <laughs> getting you here that's cool that's the jet yeah <laughs> it's queer culture like <laughs> Today, with Halloween on the horizon, and in fact, by the time this episode comes out, Halloween will be here, so watch out, ghosts and ghouls. We thought that we'd talk a bit about queerness and spookiness and all of that good shit. Rhea, I didn't know, I don't know if you wanted to open for us. In true pronouns and bio style, flip between utterly stupid bits and then some like crunchy queer theory uh but we're gonna make it as accessible as we can <laughs> um, we're going to talk a bit about turn of the screw um and a little bit about shape of water um, and then we have some some spooky entries for ally of the week and gaze of future past which uh, i'll leave as a surprise for when we get there yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's your treat for listening through the chunky queer theory. Yeah. You get to, you get, you have to have your meat if you want your pudding. Exactly. <laughs> um, Lucy, have you have you read the Turn of the Screw or seen any? I of it? believe I did in university. So, like, talking about like eleven years ago. Perfect. Um, yeah, I think I remember things. It's by Henry James. There's mm-hmm. ambiguity. One point. Um, <laughs> loosely adapted into that film, The Others, with. I believe Nicole Kidman, I could be wrong. What? Is that an adaptation of Yeah. Did you not know this? No. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Literally every ghost movie that's ever been made is The Turn of the Screw. We couldn't actually fit it into the episode last time, but The Matrix is also an adaptation (laughs) of The Turn of the Screw. (laughs) Despite the fact that I, I think actually originally suggested this, also haven't read Turn of the Screw for 11 years. So could you do us a little rundown of it? Yes, I... Read it in anticipation of The Haunting of Bly Manor, which we're not going to talk about today to avoid any spoilers for our listeners out there that might be saving it for Halloween. But yeah, I read Turn of the Screw in anticipation of that. And without spoilers, it is a quite a short hundred page or so story by Henry James, written in 1898, about a governess who is uh, who takes a job at Blind Manor, which is a kind of a country estate in Essex, looking after two small children called uh, Flora and Miles. 
And over the course of her stay, she has a number of supernatural encounters and starts to suspect that the children may know more than they're letting on. And I'll probably leave it there mm. to avoid any any potential crossover spoilers. Yeah. And that jives really well with what we're looking at today because obviously in the uh, huge boy wizard intellectual property there's a lot of stuff as well about the children knowing more than uh, than they're letting on <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so wait uh just a quick question so is like blind manor like a loose adaptation of the henry james story in the same way that it's it's like a thematic sequel or follow-up to the haunting of hill house which is a kind of quite loose adaptation of the Shirley Jackson novel. Is that kind of a continuity there? Yeah. I yeah. haven't watched it. They're, they're spiritually similar in terms of the the length of adaptation that happens. Mm. The, the first episode of, of Haunting of Blind Manor is quite true to the opening of the book, and then it starts to diverge a little bit there. It's uh, okay. set in the 1980s, so it's almost this like curious modernisation uh, of the text, but... Yeah, it's loosely adapted. It's definitely not like... That's even more apt that it has literally Garth Marenghi in it, as I discovered. It does! It does. When when my housemate Annie pointed that out to me, I was absolutely shook. And now every time I see him doing his, like, evil, shitty little grin, I just hear him being, like, actor, dreamweaver, plus writer... (laughs) I think I, both Sean and myself, have got a lot of mileage out of the, um, I know authors who use subtext and they're all cowards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, thing true. is, we talk about, like, like, a joke, but I actually believe that. Like, <laughs> I just think metaphor is for cowards. Like, say what you fucking mean. An- <laughs> a- another great thing about the uh, labyrinthine boy wizard franchise is that there's no subtext whatsoever. Um <laughs> Everybody everybody says exactly what they mean all the time. It, interestingly, this is sort of one way in which the Netflix adaptation, which we said we weren't going to talk about, but fuck it, we're talking about it now. <laughs> How many of us have seen the Netflix adaptation in... I have not, but go on. I've watched six episodes. Yeah, I've watched six episodes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but to be fair, last time when we introduced the movie, we basically guessed... All of the details about his release. Um, if you didn't want, like, a fucking slipshod job, then you should have listened to a different podcast. You, that's our brand. That's our brand, yeah. yeah. I can't really say listen to Weird Signal in such circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Weird Signal's brand, which, by the way, you should all go and listen to Weird Signal. It's fucking great is kind of like our brand, except way smarter. So you can sort of, if you haven't done your homework, you can sort of get away with the fact that everyone who's listening to it is just going to go away feeling like, fuck, I got to get that smart so I understood that. Well, our thing is basically just like, we talk all about like the theory stuff to compensate for the fact that we're actually quite dumb at understanding films and what's happening <laughs> in them. And like... That's so fuck. I see you two have been to university. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I listened to our first episode uh, a couple of times, and I definitely felt like I was getting dumber <laughs> every time I listened to it. <laughs> it's the podcast equivalent of 
doing poppers. <laughs> like, there's just a button you can press and you lose a couple of brain cells. <laughs> the headache juice. The headache juice. Back on on the, the sort of turn of the screw and its manifold adaptations, the running title we're going with for the episode today is Both and Neither. The point that we're leaping off from being that in the turn of the screw there's this question of are the spooky manifestations a product of the governess's own madness or is it a genuine supernatural phenomenon that was the ambiguity that was the- <laughs> that, yeah <laughs> that that is the only ambiguity and there are <laughs> that's the thing about pronouns in bio we love binaries here but I guess in Bly Manor, and actually the others, which I'm really glad that you've mentioned, it sort of does the ambiguity slightly differently and says, rather than it being either, it's both. And you have these scenarios where there are people who are very clearly, like unambiguously, dealing with the stresses of their own internal demons, but in settings that are <laughs> revealed to be absolutely, like, lousy with ghosts. There's um, a good quote by Brad Lighthouser for The New Yorker in 2012, who describes Turn of the Screw as rigorously committed to a lack of commitment and that its profoundest pleasure lies in the beautifully fussed over way in which James refuses to come down on either side. And if that ain't a description of queerness, yeah. Hard relate. Well, I suppose I suppose this sort of brings me to that br- brings us to the discussion point that we want to come back to throughout, mm. which is that we we promise in this podcast to talk about why your favourite shit is gay, and you better fucking believe that ghost <laughs> stories are gay as hell because you don't know if it's a ghost or mental illness or something entirely other. Mm. Fuck yeah, Lucy, liminality's your bag. What's your take? Oh shit. Ghosts? Um, oh, yeah. um, Good. I was, like, trying to think about this, like, before the episode. I think, like, the best I came up with was the fact that, kind of, the the formation of, kind of, like, the current, the horror genre as a whole, kind of leading up to the ghost story. I guess it's, like, a combination of, like, the heavily gendered dimension to it, which, obviously, is, like, kind of the legacy of... The amount that, you know, the kind of ghost or horror story format very mm, much, mm. in a lot of cases, follows the kind of witch curse plague format. And obviously that had an extremely kind of gender dimension to it because it's mostly women. It's mostly kind of like mm. the idea of like women outside of society or who are kind of like in dubious, ambiguous places within society. And so kind of get a lot of shit. But then kind of like the modern horror story, especially kind of like especially Town of the Screw as part of kind of like the modernist tradition in literature. I think that was the module I read it on. But <laughs> yeah, like while that was ev- evolving, this was when kind of um, the kind of rudiments of like kind of Freudian, indeed like pre-Freudian uh, psychology were kind of creeping in. And as well as dealing with kind of like gender and things, like queerness uh, was framed a lot in ideas of kind of like narcissism or kind of, that, I don't know, without kind of like going too kind of heavily into it. Inversion theory is kind of like an important thing to think about in this context. The idea that like in the kind of like early 20th century, late 19th century, it was kind of like transness and, and homosexuality were kind of like merged because uh, it was 
kind of sexuality was very, very heavily pinned to gender. And that kind of crossover space, but the idea that, like, because women were seen as, like, committing less to full sentences or, or like, concise sentences and their sphere was ambiguity or negative space to be filled in with things in the same way kind of homosexuality exists in the kind of negative space. That was where I, I would... I would, like, pin together these, like, strands that eventually evolved into the modern horror genre in all its, like, fundamentally, inherently queer glory. Yeah, and that that speaks so well to, you know, the turn of the screw is at its heart, like, a governess who has gone to care for children. But the kids are fucked up, and one of the ghosts who is uh, just, like, naffing about is also a governess. So these sorts of ambiguities within these ostensibly concrete notions of gender and sexuality are exposed by the phantasmal. Mm-hmm. Also, by the way, I love that you were like, you were just like, oh, I don't know, you've put me on the spot and then just like taught us a fucking seminar on queer <laughs> theory. I know, I guess that's all just kind of floating around my head and kind of disconnected fragments that somehow attack um, in my weird <laughs> sort of cold adult brain. But the point I was talking about, like, I guess to give a bit more context to what I was saying about witches and kind of the women accused of being thereof, that plays heavily into the governess trope because, like, the idea of the association with, like, witches and women, especially older women, was these were often kind of women who were unmarried or infertile and thus couldn't really uh, connect with normie society through the traditional channels of, like, reproduction and, and house maintenance. So they would have to find other means and like other more kind of ingenuitive means of kind of, you know, staking out a place in in whatever community they were living in. And often this was like, you know, learning medicine, learning midwifery, learning cool shit. And also kind of like, these would be the ones who were like, had a secondary but a significant role in taking care of children. But then like a lot of paranoia built up around the fact that they were taking care of children because they were kind of they weren't pinned to husbands and so could have all sorts of odd moral proclivities which they may introduce to the youth. And I think that, you know, that's a tradition that survives. If someone is a governess, that's usually because they didn't marry or that they're a spinster or um, they've kind of fallen out of society in some way, but kind of in a liminal space, both within society, but outside of the common modes of interacting with it. I think that's really keenly reflected in the environment of Turn of the Screw because the only adult figures in the manor are the governess and the housekeeper Mrs Gross uh, and they kind of reflect each other in quite curious ways and I think that ultimately Turn of the Screw is really concerned with secret knowledge and the the scandalousness of exposure and needing to cover and uncover things that reflects kind of the queer literature of the turn of the 19th century where things were unnameable and pointed to without ever running the risk of actually being accused of being a homosexual writer. There are three forbidden curses. Turf. Breeder. Cisgender woman. You must never use them unless it is absolutely necessary. (laughs) But sir, what about the fourth curse? Genderless transformicus. You must never use it. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> 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 
So next we're going to uh, move on to our segment, Gaze of Future Past. Uh, would you like to introduce to the audience Gaze of Future Past, Reed? Gaze of Future Past. <laughs> Past is a segment we will try to do each week where Cleo or I will convince the other that a figure, be it historical or fictional, or even indeed in the present day, is actually gay and or trans. So Cleo, who is this week's gay of future past? Thank you very much, Re and Lucy. For your listening pleasure, today, obviously, so far in the episode, we've talked a couple of times about a enormous boy-wizard intellectual property, um, one that's really inspired a lot of people in the queer community. And so I thought I would enlighten you as to the queerness and um, inherent queer identity of a character from this boy-wizard franchise. So... When the boy wizard goes to whatever whatever the fuck the wizard school is called, (laughs) redacted. Yeah, goes to redacted school. Goes to redacted school. Of witchcraft and redacted. Witchcraft and womanhood. (laughs) Witchcraft and womanhood, yeah. Redacted school of witchcraft and womanhood. It's actually quite spooky because there are a lot of ghosts at this school. And one of these ghosts, you may not know is a queer icon, an unsung queer icon. And that ghost is called Moaning Myrtle, and that ghost, despite appearances, is a gay man. I hope that her name's not trademarked. If it is, (laughs) (laughs) if it is, I guess we're just editing the audio and re-uploading it. All of our efforts to dance around being sued are suddenly brought down crashing hard. (laughs) It's just been brought to my attention um, that I misspoke. And the uh, character in question from the Boy Wizard franchise is Boning Bertle. Ah, yes. Yes, I know exactly who you You know, famous, famous ghost wizard Boning Bertel from the Boy Wizard franchise. Okay, why is Boning Bertel a gay man? First of all, I'm going to start off with the point that I think is going to be most controversial because I feel like I need to preface this with, I know that there is a lot of controversial discourse around public sex and its role within the queer community with some very outspoken voices on both sides of the discussion and some, I think it's fair to say, pretty bad takes floating around out there. Yes. I'm not gonna wade in there, partially because, as as we said earlier, this is a dumb bitch podcast. We we don't have the clout to make those takes. We don't wanna get canceled in episode two. But whether we like it or not, that discourse is part of our queer history and whatever people say about it, there is definitely a queer historiography in sex in secluded but public spaces emerging from the suppression of queer sexual acts wholesale. And what is this ghost, if not (laughs) hanging around a bathroom? (laughs) 24-7, waiting for someone to show up with a password. That's true. She she is, like, literally in the bath waiting. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And, like, several different <laughs> bathrooms. Yeah. 
Like in in book four of Boy Wizard, um, the, the Boy Wizard athletics competition, there's the whole bit about whether or not transfigured wizards are eligible to compete in with the rest of the wizards at sports. Um, she she shows up in the bath with with the boy wizard. So yeah, with the egg. With Cross- with the egg crossover, crossover joke. joke crossover Yay. joke. We're already thinking that that's the film that includes. I believe it's even Robert Pattinson says the line, you know, the sixth form bathroom on the fourth floor, and then leans in really suggestively and is like, "Not a bad place for a bath." Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe that actually happens because okay. I've seen it in isolation. <laughs> I've seen like the first film. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's he- it's heavy. It's heavy with something. It's heavy with yeah. yeah. Forgive me, boy wizard intellectual franchise. I said you didn't do subtext, but wow, <laughs> I would argue that's super hypertext. Hypertext is literally written. Bold delicious. Who's the actress who plays Moni Myrtle in the thing? So I, I know she's like she's notable because she was sort of like. If it's the one I'm thinking of, she was, like, cast a lot because she sort of looked 12 well into her 30s and got a kind of niche in that capacity. In that, like, she played, like, teenagers or young children or just, like, kind of weird, ageless ghosts. Yeah, well, I I just Googled her and, yeah, she's called Shirley Henderson and she's 54 years old. Yeah. It's really impressive. She was playing an actual teenager in Trainspotting. Right. And just was kind of immortalized as a teenager. Yeah, God. We on this podcast stand Shirley Henderson for bringing a vibrant gay character to our screens, <laughs> but it's got to have a certain bitter irony if you're like into your 30s getting typecast as teenagers and literally <laughs> playing a ghost who is stuck as a teenager forever. <laughs> but yeah, so we've got the fact that Boning Bertel is active in the local cottaging scene, yeah. um, along with apparently... Robert Pattinson. <laughs> so, more points to we'll, that. We'll do Robert Pattinson next week. Also, let's look at the name. We got this long, flat iron hair, big round glasses, uh, like a like a shift dress, and a name like Boning Bertle. You tell me that is not peak mid nineties drag scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I see it. Yeah, and I'm not saying that drag is something that's limited to men or to gay men or to cis people or anything like that. But I'm just saying that is a quintessential drag race scenario. I think that might be my point. Yeah, I feel like this is a weaker argument than last week. I was kind of reaching for a conclusion there that just wasn't there. I'm actually just like a little bit shocked by the revelation that it's it's canon that Arpat is in on the cottaging in the Boy Wizard franchise. That's like I feel like I feel like I've actually been stumped by Lucy, who's just come in with a much better gaze of future. Past. If we're just like on a on a not unrelated point, I've not actually seen this show, but like apparently. Um, the initial Harry Potter thing was like heavily riffing on the worst witch, which is not something I grew up with. But I was uh, at one point introduced to the fact that it has a character called Mrs. Hardbroom, who is basically sort of like the girl Snape. And I emphatically uh, recommend Google image searching that because, yeah, she's sort of she's an icon of some sort. <laughs> Terrifying top energy. I did grow up with the worst witch and it's kind of... I did, yeah. It's kind of queer in the sense that like... 
all single gendered school stuff is queer. Like, like you just sort of, you just can't really write that shit. But yeah, she is this like incredibly severe dominatrix looking woman. Wow, she really is. Yeah, it's funny. Harry Potter. Boy wizard. (laughs) Redacted. Redacted. It actually depicted like a much less severe school environment than the worst witch did. But the worst witch somehow, especially by the end of it, had like so much more levity. Mm, Yeah. I'd rather go to the worst witch school than I would the boy wizard school of wizardry and womanhood. Yeah. We call that. 100%. I mean, I'm kind of popping a semi just looking at these images you've brought up now. <laughs> this is hard proof. This is hard proof. It's quite distracting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, I guess, right. Yeah. That is my pitch to you for gays of future past. What do you think, Lucia? Um, I don't know enough about the character, but you know, I'm, I'm with it. <laughs> Yeah, vibing. Yeah. That's actually compelling on multiple levels. No, I think yeah. so. I'm convinced. Yeah, good job. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> um, I'm... But your, your controversial point, which I was anticipating with slight gritted teeth, actually turned out to be your strongest argument. <laughs> <laughs> so... I thought you were going to bring up Mary Margolius, uh, so, and yeah. I was like, isn't she just noted gay? Yeah. Oh, she's definitely yeah. just noted gay. And allies. Yeah. 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 I don't know whether Miriam Margolis is active on the same cottaging scene as Robert Patterson and Mrs. Hardbroom, but the idea that they might all be in the fourth fourth grade bathroom or whatever, yeah, is uh, uh, deeply titillating. Um, And if anyone wants to make us some pronouns in bio fan art, I strongly encourage it. liminality and this sort of ambiguity of ghosts. I thought we could move a bit on to queerness and monstrosity. And for this, we are going to start by looking at the uh, Guillermo del Toro flick, Shape of Water. Do you have the vital statistics for Shape of Water? As in what it's about? Yeah, what it's about, when it was. All the stuff that I can see (laughs) re-googling right now. (laughs) I saw it in the cinema and absolutely loved it and like cried all the way through. It was so good. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I really recommend it. Uh, I'm not even going to look at the, the plot synopsis. I'm just going to do it from memory. It follows a mute woman um, in... It's set during the Cold War, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it follows uh, a mute woman uh, who works at this kind of underground secret bunker testing site. I think she works as a cleaner. And she kind of discovers a sort of quote-unquote experiment or yeah, secret within the facility and it's a, a fish-like monster that she, over the course of the movie, develops um, a romantic relationship with. Yeah, I think that, that kind of sums it up. The thing I'm really interested in is the way that... Just quickly, Lucy, have you seen the movie? I have seen the movie, yeah. Perfect, wonderful. That's good, though, because you're on the podcast that's talking about the movie. Yeah, it's always a plus. Um, And this kind of chimes with what you were saying earlier about the tying of gender and sexuality. Even in quite queer readings of the film, the relationship is interpreted as heterosexual. Mm. 
And there are a number of reasons for this. And the main one is that it seems to be predicated on physiognomy and inference that like Elisa, it seems fair to assume within the constraints of the film is a robot voice, cisgender women. But um That's the the main character. That's the main character. Yeah. But the fish creature because it's indicated through this incredible hand gesture, by the way, for those of you who have not seen the film, has um, a crab-like deployable penis or, or sort of phallus-like structure and a physiognomy or physiology. I don't actually know the difference of, between those words, but a shape roughly approximating that of a human cisgender male body. I'm sure that the way that I've just laid that all out is like not very queer theory, but please bear with me. I'm very <laughs> stupid. Um, basically, the fish looks like a fucking ripped dude and has a dick that pops out. <laughs> there we go. And there we go. <laughs> we fucking got it. Um, and because of this, is it's assumed to be a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. But it seems to me, and I don't know if you guys agree with this, but this is like the king of an aquatic species from like unknowable depths with a totally different experience of life than humanity. And this, this is one of the main points of the movie. Like this is in the text of the movie. And it seems to me ridiculous that the assumption is that quote unquote, his experience of gender is mm. the same. Yeah. You know, it might be a fortuitous coincidence that their sexual relationship is anatomically compatible in the same way that a heterosexual cisgender human relationship is anatomically compatible. But, like, it's much more interesting to me to say, oh, this is a trans narrative because it is a, a human female... Human female? <laughs> an adult human. An adult human female <laughs> gendered experience interacting with a completely unknowable, uncategorizable yeah. gendered experience. So, yeah, they are... Uh... This was predated by several years by Alan Moore's Neonomicon, uh, which broke a lot of territory, a lot of ground in uh, woman-fish-person relations. Um, yeah, as someone who's, like, read Neonomicon, I just want to say for any listeners at home whose curiosity outstrips their reach, when we see human-fish-person relationships, there is some quite graphic sexual assault by a fish-person. It is much less lovely than uh, Shape of Water. Mm. Yeah, if you're going to watch either of them, go with Shape of Water. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, had, I, I had my problems with it, but I think that mostly was just because, like... I watched it when I was brutally hungover and had just turned 30 and was really sad about it. So I was like, this is not... Yeah, there's there's some contextual information that needs to be mm. considered there, for sure. Why yeah, for sure. did they have the bit about the guy like washing his hands before touching his junk, but not after? Like, what? Wait, when did that happen? The, there's a bit where the fascist guy who is doing the man is the real monster bit in every Guillermo del Toro film, mm. which, you know, I guess... Trite as it may be after it's been done 70,000 times, um, we do kind of have to accept because it is pretty queer positive mm. to have a film that is going like, you thought this monster was fucked up? Well, this guy hates gay people, so... Uh, yeah. <laughs> isn't that more fucked up than a fish guy with a dick that pops out of his little fish pants? I really love that Guillermo del Toro just commits to that every single time as yeah. well. Every yeah. single time. 
I guess this is actually my problem with Alan Moore. Like, Alan Moore, when are you going to, like, get off your fucking wizard high horse and give us, like, a lovely monster? (laughs) Alan Moore, listener of this podcast, (laughs) pronouns in bio. We're calling you out. Yeah, (laughs) all your fish people are just such fucking, like... They got real bad energy, dude. <laughs> bad, bad vibes. They got bad vibes. They're not a vibe. <laughs> There's actually a story I would recommend. Uh, partial self-promotion because I appear in an anthology alongside this story. But there's a story called All Our Salt Bottled Hearts, uh, which is a kind of like, to, to just talk a bit about the source material. So Alan Moore's Neonomicon was taking characters from Lovecraft's mythos, in particular with the Fishmen, that was from the Shadow Over Innsmouth story. In a kind of tribute anthology that was released about five years ago, there is a uh, story called All Our Salt Bottle Hearts, which talks about the kind of like third generation Innsmouth children, because spoilers, the fishmen fuck in that as well and produce a kind of hybrid <laughs> race of people who then like return to the sea. But you know, that's even with that colossal spoiler, it's still a really fucking good story to read. But several generations down the line, it's a like very, very overtly queer reading of like. Innsmouth has been raided by the feds. They've all had to go into like even more hiding than they were before. And now it's like this kind of family of like mutual supporting people connecting up the lost, you know, Obed Marshes and Gilmans and whatnot. And it's it's really rather lovely. It's by a lady called Sonia Taff with two A's. Uh, yeah, fish people. I'm super here for, and I think this is sort of something that's present in the shape of water and in a lot of Del Toro's work in a lot of these various different takes on on monstrosity is you know in one way or another different perspectives some of which go some way to rehabilitating a genre like Lovecraftian horror which is just like comes from a place that's like so racist Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong I grew up devouring that stuff but you do have to you do have to, like, set it aside after a while. In terms of, like, discussing kind of monstrosity, horror, and queerness, how much of it is just... I think this is true of Lovecraft, but maybe true elsewhere. Like, a lot of horror films, whether we kind of consider them canonically queer or not, are very often just kind of depicting the horror of heterosexuality rather than the kind of, like, ambiguity or potential wonder of homosexuality. I know this is certainly Mm. true of Lovecraft, who hated sex in any form, and, like, it fucking shows in his work. I was thinking like alien in particular. Mm. I know. I think. I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think that when we talk about queerness and monstrosity, I suppose the easy target, not that it's an inaccurate one, is queerness is othered, monsters are other, therefore the monsters are queer people. But it is more interesting to think of it as monstrosity in, in its sort of, I guess, total alienness or whatever. Mm offers like a respite or a freedom from compulsory heterosexuality or mm. heteronormativity. Alienness in its ambiguity, but also kind of relativity. Yeah. I was trying to develop the point and I could literally get it as far as like, and that's where everyone wants to fuck the alien, the alien from alien. <laughs> <laughs> alien, the alien from alien. That's his name. That's why the movie is called Alien. <laughs> Because then they go on and they do aliens to indicate that there is more than one alien called alien. Yeah, the family. The West Sussex alien aliens. Exactly, yeah. And then, like, alien colon Prometheus to indicate that they've introduced a new alien, played by Michael Fassbender, who is called Prometheus. Called Prometheus, yeah. yeah okay. exactly. It's, it's hyphenated alien Prometheus. 
It is. It is. It's that, a double-barreled surname. That's the pronouns in bio. Like, alien, alien, aliens. <laughs> This is the mid-episode break that you'll all probably skip through, but I please urge that you don't. It takes an awful lot of effort just to get up in the morning and know that you are transgender and look at yourself in the mirror. And one of the things that keeps us going is coffee, because feeling like you're going to shit yourself and die um, just it, it makes it, well, it makes you get out of fucking bed. So you can now actually help us get coffee by going to ko-fi.com forward slash pronouns cast. That's ko-fi.com forward slash pronouns cast. Literally anything we can get off this episode will keep us going, keep us... Keeping the bants alive for you. Keep us shitting. Keep us shitting. Yeah. Keep us shitting for you, the listeners who we love. And we'll... uh, to all you cis listeners out there, consider it your cis tax. It is, <laughs> yes. Give your money to trans people, and by trans people we mean us. Specifically us. Go listen to Weird Signal. We're going to be like releasing probably some sporadic things here and there, perhaps surprisingly sooner than one might expect. In the meantime, uh, Sean, one half of the Weird Signal team, has also started a kind of, I was going to say side project, but it is just like a project in its own right. It's called The Reeves Report, and it's like uh, some of his short fiction with some uh, like dramatic readings by the author. Uh, yeah, go listen. The next section of our podcast is the Ally of the Week section. We've been talking about the Boy Wizard franchise throughout and we, we understand that it is a cherished work of intellectual property, that there's a lot of difficulty and fragility about that, but we are now going to just talk about the work itself. Our ally of the week this week is XXX Bloody Wrist 666XXX, otherwise known as Tara Gillespie the author of My Immortal, the Boy Wizard fanfic written between 2006 and 2007. We'd just like to thank Bloody Wrist 666 both for contributing this enormous wealth of literature that, that is still enjoyed by children of the world today over mm. and for continuing the fight for wizard's rights on Twitter to this day. So thank you. <laughs> Breathing fresh life into the career of Good Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our boys in Good Charlotte just blew, blew up. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not familiar with My Immortal, it's a 44 chapter long piece of fan fiction that is widely regarded to the point where it actually has three references on Wikipedia as being the worst written fanfiction of all time. But we're going to make the case that does it a disservice to some degree. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think it's actually homophobic that people have said it's the worst written <laughs> fanfiction. They're clearly <laughs> just misreading it. It's also funny that it's called a fanfiction when it is the original, the original Boy Wizard <laughs> franchise yeah, that has sold... Yeah, I can't quite work that one out. No, yeah, it sold a billion copies in oh, like physical units. There's a theme park named after it, There right? literally is, yeah. yeah. So it's crazy that it's called fanfiction, but that's just, that's 2020 for you. Yeah. So we're going to read some excerpts from My Immortal and then we'll discuss 
why XXX body risk 666 XXX deserves to be our ally of the week through some kind of intertextual readings of her text. <clears throat> Bastard, I shouted angrily. I regretted saying it when I looked up because I was looking into the pale white face of a gothic boy with spiky black hair and red streaks in it. He was wearing so much eyeliner that I, that I was going down his face <laughs> and he was wearing black lipstick. He didn't have glasses anymore and now he was wearing red contact lenses just like Draco's and there was no scar on his forehead anymore. He had a manly stubble on his chin. He had a sexy English accent. He looked exactly like Joel Madden. He was so sexy that my body went all hot when I saw him. Kind of like an erection, only I'm a girl, so I didn't get one, you sicko. <laughs> um, I'm laughing because the allyship jumps out. <laughs> um, it should be apparent. It should be apparent, yeah. <laughs> I mean, where do we start? Mm. First of all, the fact that this is the first introduction of this character mm. in the text, and yet it directly alludes to what are obvious physical changes. Mm. And you just don't see that very often in literature about queerness. It always has to be about the journey, about the struggle, about the suffering. Mm. Here we just have this living portrayal of queer people. Mm. It's very affirmative. It's very affirmative, yeah. Yeah. And like rocking manly stubble with black lipstick is just like, that's a mood. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like... That's straight out of the Boning Bertle playbook. <laughs> and, you know, obviously. Like, as in, like, more guys should do that. I think that, I, I genuinely find that really hot. Yeah, 100%. I, mean, I think I think that black lipstick and stubble is a look regardless of gender. Mm. Like, that is that is a look that fits everybody thank you goths thank you goths thank you so much yeah oh obviously from the aesthetics alone you can tell that the boy wizard franchise is another entry in the matrix expanded cinematic universe <laughs> in which uh goths are granted superpowers and additional genders and rob zombie pulsing uh, melodically in the background <laughs> yeah <laughs> rob zombie pulsing that's my new cellar door <laughs> <laughs> i think we should talk about the, the final sentence. Mm. He was so sexy that my body went all hot when I saw him, kind of like an erection, only I'm a girl, so I didn't get one, you sicko. Mm. I think Absolutely. That that's like a really great encompassing of, of like plurality of embodied experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's obvious throughout that the protagonist of the Boy Wizard franchise is trans. But crucially, an ambiguity is allowed to be preserved over their specific physical journey mm. and their experience of it. And so, yeah, particularly opinions vary on people like Valerie Solanus and that particular brand of it. But I feel like there's a real inheritance for trans people in I didn't get one. You sicko. <laughs> what didn't they get? Who are you asking about my anatomy? Why does it matter what I got in my pants? It feels like an erection. <laughs> That's all that matters. That's all that matters, you sicko. <laughs> Thank you, Ebony Darkness Dementia, dementia. Raven Way. Yeah. It's one of her names literally Dementia. <laughs> her, one yes. of her names is literally Dementia, yes. And Way because... Um, Gerard. Gerard. Yeah. Way of My Chemical Romance. She's related to and in love with Gerard Way of My Chemical Romance. Yes. Regularly play Hogsmeade. 
Ja. <lacht> We started Frenching passively. We took off each other's clothes enthusiastically. He felt me up before I took off my top. <laughs> then I took off my black leather bra and he took off his pants. He went on the bed and started making out naked and then he put his boy's thingy in mine and we had sex. Caps lock. That last two words. <laughs> Full stop. Perfect. Perfect. That was yeah. beautifully done. Um, you didn't tell me you were classically trained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Started at the poor schools. <laughs> so first of all, it's it's not necessarily uh, fully within the compass of queer readings, but I just want to shout out that we stand a king of consent here. Mm -hmm. Like we started Frenching passively, we took off each other's clothes enthusiastically. He felt mm -hmm. me up before I took off my top. Mm -hmm. That's. Mm -hmm. Like, there is clear stages being observed to all of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, children across the world read this Boy Wizard franchise. Like, billions of kids have read this intensely erotic <laughs> uh, wizard book. And they're learning some good lessons. And they're learning about, incredible yeah, about, lessons about, about consent. Yeah, absolutely, about sex education. See, my read on the We Started Frenching Passively was one of those kind of, like, and they were both bottoms scenarios. <laughs> You're both kind of like leaning back and it's like, wait, what? Yeah, the dynamic in it is one of two queer people who are trying to work out their, re re their relative sexual identities and their relative bodily experiences. Like, he put his boy's thingy in mine and we had sex. Wait, are they docking? Is that... Sorry? <laughs> are they docking? Is that what's... Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, come to the previous passage. Um, there's... I don't think there's any other way of reading that. Personally, um, I'm, I'm just simply not an advanced enough sexual being to speak to whether there's overlap between we're both bottoms, how do we do it, and now we're docking. <laughs> But the thing <laughs> I don't actually know if a man with a penis and a man without a penis have sex if it's still docking or if it needs to be two people with penises mm -hmm. putting the penises together. Um, but which, if you're listening at home, one, sorry. Yes. And two, <laughs> I'm really sorry. Remember when you asked me when we were uploading the first episode whether it was explicit? <laughs> <laughs> I really think this episode has really highlighted that, yes, it yeah, is. Yeah, we, we crossed a couple of lines there. <laughs> um, basically, if you're in the docking fandom, email us. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> With as much detail as you can. Um, and if you don't know what docking is, don't, don't Google, Google it. it. <laughs> don't email us. Stop listening now. No, I think that there's a real tenderness in the description of he put his boy's thingy in mine mm, mm. i think the kind of lack of commitment as to what exactly the thingy is allows for it to be anything mm, mm, mm. and the anythingness of it still makes that character a boy mm. regardless of what the thingy may be mm, and mm, i think that mm. that's that's for me as the, the crucial point in this, in this yeah. rotation. Yeah, absolutely. It's perhaps the clearest articulation in the Boy Wizard franchise of the difference between the body you're born into and the experience of gender that you have. Yes, yeah, exactly.
Yeah, fucking right. Fuck off, you bastard, I screamed. I ran out of the room and into the forbidden forest where I had lost my virility to Draco. And then I started to bust into tears. <laughs> I didn't notice it said bust. <laughs> I, I didn't even fucking notice that until you thought it was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think... There's so much going on in such a short passage, yeah? Yeah, well, that's the thing. There's so much emotion crammed into such a short passage because there are so... This this is from 2006, right? Like, this Mm. is so ahead of its time. Even now, there is so little queer literature that can approach so emotionally and so confrontationally the incredibly raw subject of queerness and parenthood. Like... Wait, well, where are you getting the parenthood from? Well, where I had lost my virility. <laughs> like, there's... It's it's in there in the text. It very clearly says, lost my virility. And, like, so many... Whether it's through trans healthcare, which can often come with a choice to be made about whether or not you're able to right, have I'm children. With I'm with you. Whether it's through prejudice about, uh, against non-heterosexual structures of family that make barriers like adoption harder for queer couples. And here there's an admittance that in entering this queer relationship, um, which is depicted, again, in a vivid, intensely erotic vignette in The Forbidden Forest... Mm -hmm. um, I feel like as well, like, running off into The Forbidden Forest, where you've also been having sex, is a a real queer mood. mm, mm. just, Just fucking... In, in a fit of emotion, just run bare ass naked in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've all done that, it. We've all <laughs> among us. It's quite hard. I mean, like, if you're gay and you live near a forbidden forest, you're gonna have sex in it. Like, <laughs> Why would it be called forbidden, forbidden otherwise? Exactly, I guess? yeah. Like, that's the forbiddenness of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. So your read of virility primarily relates to kind of, like, fertility or, like, or kind of just generally kind of like sexual potency. Because I mean, like, it could just mean like dudeness. Forbidden Forest where I had, that's perfect tense. That could just be like, I don't know, like, back in year one where my egg was cracked and I lost my virility in this, like, this whole section that was <laughs> omitted from the text. Shit. But the other thing I was going to draw to that is like, have you guys read uh, Joris Kohlhoisman's Arabuas or Against Nature? I haven't, but I'm very excited to get the pricey. It's like one of the iconic kind of like great novels of uh, the decadent era in France. And uh, it's about just a guy moving to like a mansion outside of Paris or like on the outskirts, going into kind of like artistic seclusion and losing his fucking mind. In one scene, he uh, realizes he's become impotent and uh, holds a funeral feast for his virility. And so I'm wondering if there's some sort of resonance with that. That, mm. uh, I see that, yeah. Can no longer. Well, that's the thing. You've lost that virility, but clearly not entirely. If you're able to like bust mm. while crying, <laughs> that's true. You are busting while crying. And uh, d- just to talk about another kind of gu- of busting, um, ghost busting. <laughs> we- <laughs> busting makes me feel good. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Busting does make you feel good. Like, it, um, was it? We've seen fucking Glinner who said women can't nut. Women can't nut. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, the the direct this is obviously clearly a whimsical answer to this, um, mm. even though in linear time it precedes it by ten years. Yeah, no. Uh 
Buddy Wrist 666 was anticipating. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Intensely prescient. What you've said, Lucy, it does link us back to how we entered this with ghosts and queerness and that like even after that former sexual identity has been lost, the ghost of it still lingers in the Forbidden Forest mm. as an ambiguous figure, both past and present. Mm. I feel like I do want to put a disclaimer in for our listeners. And that if you do go to read My Immortal, which I personally think you should, there is some rampant homophobia in there alongside the readings that we have made. And I think that we were talk- discussing this before the beginning of the recording of the episode. And I think it's actually a really fascinating insight into what it was like to be a teenage girl in 2006, in that it was real commonplace at high school to just throw around these kind of homophobic slurs without any real understanding of like what they meant and their historicity. But within My Immortal, there's also this like really prevalent curiosity about queerness and gay men specifically. Mm. So yeah, it, it reflects this kind of tension between being a teenager in the in the mid-noughties in a quite an interesting way. Mm, mm, absolutely, yeah. There's a way in which bisexuality, and particularly bisexuality in men, and gender fluidity in men, is fetishized partially in sort of aesthetic or erotic ways, but also in this idea that these particular kinds of men will be more sensitive, will be more emotionally aware. Mm. It reminds me actually of the way in which... One of the reasons that uh, Robert Patterson, famous cottaging enthusiast and vampire in the Twilight franchise, um, Robert Patterson, if you're listening, it's okay, you live your truth. We accept you. We accept you. One of the reasons that Edward in the Twilight franchise is so attractive is the fact that he has this sexual intensity but refuses to consummate it, which seems very conservative, but actually particularly to, you know, teenage girls who are reading the books, represents this being who is sexual, but in a very safe, Mm. very accessible, very sensitive way. You know, obviously, much like My Immortal, there's all sorts of problematic shit going on in Twilight, but there are these archetypes that are really telling about how teenage sexuality, and particularly teenage female sexuality has a very hostile territory to negotiate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yes, disclaimer, it is homophobic. (laughs) It is. We are doing jokes. (laughs) Tara Gillespie, aka XXX Bloody Wrists 666XXX, who I want to again remind our readers at home is canonically the author of the enormously globally popular Boy Wizard franchise... (laughs) You are our ally of the week. Yes. Thank you. Congratulations, Tara. Every day, every hour, this very minute perhaps, dark forces attempt to penetrate this castle's walls. Is it the Dementors, sir? No, child. It's intellectual property lawyers. That is about all we've got time for today. I hope that you have gone away from this podcast with a little more consideration to how the ghosts and monsters and goths in your life might actually be a lot gayer than you think. (laughs) 
If you have any future suggestions for Ally of the Week or Gaze of Future Past, if there's something you'd like to see us discuss, if you'd like to suggest a guest for the podcast, if you'd like to be a guest for the podcast, mm -hmm. then please do get in touch with us at PronounceCast on Twitter or PronounceCast at gmail.com. Every episode we like to shout out a charitable cause or fundraiser or something that helps the community in a way that might be described as more tangible than us cracking wise about boy wizards. Well, might be described by some people. Obviously what we do is very important. But as today is Intersex Awareness Day, we thought we would shout out the INIA project. Um, this is a network based in Europe, but with projects across the world the sponsors activism, training and intervention around the challenges and prejudices faced by intersex people across the world. Intersex people, as, as some of you will well know, are routinely erased or invisible within the LGBTQ plus umbrella. And it's really, really important that this kind of work is done to raise attention to these intrusive surgeries that are performed on children, to the social exclusion, to the stigma, and the INIA project, that's at INIA project on twitter.com, are doing amazing work around that. So please, please, please do look them up, throw them a dollar if you can, that'd be fantastic. You can also sling us a couple of quid to show us how much you appreciate our hard work at ko-fi.com forward slash pronouns cast. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being a wonderful guest. Yeah, honestly, thank Cheers. you so much for bringing, being a wonderful guest. And I just want to say for like substantially raising the intellectual tone of this <laughs> podcast. Um, a feat that based on episode one, we would have thought was impossible. Yeah, I've got, <laughs> I feel like I've come away from this episode feeling smarter instead of dumber. Yeah, it, it, which works out as a net, in, in, net, net, net IQ neutral. gain. Yeah. Yeah. It's a completely neutral experience. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Reeve Brignall. I've been Cleo Madeline. And remember, uh, get those pronouns in the bio, baby. Uh, we're pronouns in bio. Pronouns in bio. Pronouns in bio. <laughs>